This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Quality Edge Vesta Steel Siding. Steel siding that never fades and offers a guaranteed lifetime warranty. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Chance and my guest today is Josh Linkner. He is or has been really the founder and CEO of five tech companies, which sold for a combined value of over 200 million. He's the author of four books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Disciplined Dreaming and The Road to Reinvention. And today we're gonna to talk about his newest book called Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. So Josh, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, great to be with you. So. Part of your in your bio, I didn't read this because I wanted to save it for a question. You describe yourself, I suppose, self-described as a creative troublemaker. And in some ways, would you say that's potentially a, a, a line that runs through this book, that, that the, the biggest breakthroughs come from creative innovators or troublemakers? Well, I think it is a line that runs through the book. I mean, for me, when I said it, I didn't mean that I'm you know, breaking the law or causing harm, but rather willing to challenge conventional wisdom, willing to imagine what's possible instead of just what is. And yeah, to a degree, shake things up a little bit and make some trouble. The thing about the book, though, is that it isn't just for a select few. It's not like there's you know, one out of a thousand of us are creative troublemakers. The, the, the premise of the book is that we all can be creative in right. our own ways. Yeah. And, and when we tap into that incredible superpower that we all share, the outcomes that we care about in our lives the most really start to unfold. Yeah, and I, and I think every company probably could use one of those folks, right? Because I, I do think a lot of innovations come from somebody. It's always the new guy or the new gal, right? That shows up and goes, why do we do it that way? <laughs> you know, that people are like, oh, you know, I don't know. So I, so I do think that you can call it troublemaker or, or whatever you want to call it. You do need people questioning, you know, is there a better way to do it? I, I love the stories. I mean, you you really dug in and told uh, very detailed stories of, of companies, some some we've heard of, some not so much. But I, I want to challenge on one thing. I, as I listened to those, I kept thinking, well, yeah, in retrospect, <laughs> those were little breakthroughs, but weren't they in many cases just them trying to get through the day? Yeah, so you're, you hit an interesting point. So the, the premise of the book really is, is arming everyday people to become everyday innovators. Right. So rather than leaving innovation to a select few, you know, the two creative troublemakers out of, out of a 10,000 person company, it sort of gives everybody permission to make a little trouble. So all 10,000 of these people in this example could be creative, again, in their own ways. And, and you're right that every experiment doesn't always work out. And, and certainly in retrospect, we can look at an accomplishment and say, well, gee, that was great. But the truth is that nobody steps up to bat and has 100% batting average. And, and I think one of the key pr principles that we talk about in the book is sort of the beauty of making mistakes and what we can learn from them and how we can overcome them. And so what the book really lays out is a systematic approach, not to win every time, because that's unrealistic, but to bring our creativity in a way that can create meaningful results, even though we're going to have some setbacks along the way that will allow us to achieve the the outcomes that we truly seek. Okay. So you're coaching me on this, working with my firm. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, Josh, I'm just not creative. You know, it's funny you say that. It always breaks my heart a little bit when people say that to me because the, the research uh, it, it, would really dis, dis, would disagree. Truth is, and I've been studying human creativity now for 20 plus years, read every academic journal there is. We are all creative as human beings. We are, in fact, we are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. Now, the, the thing that's heartbreaking, though, is that many of us have been trained to think that we aren't creative. 
largely by well-intentioned teachers and bosses and parents and such. But, but the truth is that we all can bring this power to the surface. Every one of us has the right hardware. Think about the brain chemistry. We all have the brain chemistry and we all can learn it. I always like to say, uh, John, that creativity is like your weight, not your height. Try as I may, I won't grow another foot next month, but I can change my weight based on my behavior. And your creativity is exactly the same. So just because someone doesn't perform creativity in a classic sense, maybe oil on canvas or interpretive dance, doesn't mean they can't be creative in their own roles, in their own career, in their own craft. One of the things I think is a li- can be a little bit painful, maybe, or at least daunting for somebody who thinks, I mean, think about all the industries in the last 10 years that have just kind of gotten smoked because they stood still. But to change, like to know, to make classified ads free, say, for the newspapers would have cost them millions on the day that they did it. So they didn't do it. And so they eventually lost all that revenue to, you know, an innovation that came along and, and kicked them in the butt. So how do you tell that 60 year old CEO, <laughs> you're going to have to like, you know, lose money this quarter or else you're going to go out of business? Well, one thing that I've learned, John, in now 30 years in business is that too often we tend to overestimate the risk of trying something new, but we underestimate the risk of standing still. So I think the very first thing we need to do is shine a bright flashlight on the real risk of doing nothing. And yeah, we might get through the next week or two, but but is that really going to propel us to sustainable success in a world that's changing at a rate like none other in history? So once we agree that standing still is perhaps riskier than it may seem, then we have to figure out how to de-risk the process of change, de-risk the process of trying something more bold. And the way to do that, and that's what this book is all about, it's not about swinging for the fences and taking irresponsible risk and betting everything on one idea, quite the opposite. It's about cultivating high volumes of micro-innovations, small little daily acts in, in high velocity. And what that does is it de-risks the process. It allows it to become much more accessible to us all. Those small wins add up to big things, and we're developing critical skills along the way. So to me, it's a much more pragmatic approach to innovation that it's far less risky, yet far more effective. Particularly that this isn't in their DNA or hasn't been in their DNA. How do they start experimenting with this? How do they start practicing this? Because I, I suspect that people where it becomes part of the culture, get better at it. So, so what are some of the, like I, I was looking at your, at your website and you've got, I think it was a blog post I love, nine brainstorming techniques. I'm guessing that that's, that's one of the, the tactics, doing brainstorming well <laughs> is one of the tactics that might start helping people develop this muscle. But, but you know, how do you get started? Yeah, well, I think first is acknowledging that we can't afford, none of us really can afford the luxury of not having a creative organization. In a world of dizzying speed and complex change and fist fighting competition and, and new social dynamics, like I don't know that we can afford that. Furthermore, with, with the, the COVID situation, the whole world has hit a giant reset button and patterns of business and life have, have been broken. And so now it's now more than ever, I think it's mission critical for us to deploy these skills in our businesses. That being said, it doesn't have to feel scary and overwhelming. The first thing we have to do is de-risk or, or, or remove the fear. So it turns out that fear and creativity cannot coexist. So if you say things on the wall, like be creative, and then you send someone to time out when an idea isn't fully baked, you're going to train your entire company to never be creative. So as leaders, one of the core priorities that we need to do is make sure that it's a safe environment where all ideas are celebrated, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Second of all, we need to make it part of the gig. Make sure that people are rewarded and celebrated, and it's a core responsibility for everybody, yes, to do their heads down work, but also to be heads up and to make sure that they're you know, learning and pushing the creative boundaries. And then what we next finally need to do is get to a, a better upgrade of technology. Here's what I mean. It turned out, I just looked, looked this up. In 1958, 
all these new technologies came out. There was the first magnetic tape for storage. There was a new system for storing contacts called a Rolodex. There was the first video game, which was like this ridiculous tennis game and you couldn't even see what it looked like. Oh, and there was a technology for brainstorming called, uh, for, for idea extraction called brainstorming. Yeah. So fast forward to 2021, there's all these new technologies. There, you have LinkedIn for your contacts. You, you, you can store the entire library of Congress on a thumb drive. Tennis games look as 3D as the real thing, but we're still using an outdated technology called brainstorming. Yeah. Yeah. So in the book and also in the supplemental website, I share much more fun and powerful and modern approaches to bringing your best ideas forward. Yeah, and I think sometimes you know, a couple of your ideas, I could see somebody looking at them and go, well, I can't really do that. That's goofy. But I think sometimes that goofiness allows people the permission to, to actually be more creative, doesn't it? You, you hit it right on the head. You know, one of them that sounds really goofy is a technology that I developed. It's called role storming. So role storming is like brainstorming, but in character. The problem with most brainstorming sessions is when you share an idea, you're also responsible for it. And it's like your whole ego is on the line. And so what do we do? Instead of sharing our bold ideas, we share our safe ones because we don't want to look foolish and we don't want to upset the boss. Role storming fixes that in one second. Basically, what you do is everybody in the room chooses who a different character to be. You could be a famous author or a playwright or a movie star or a rock singer or a villain. And you play that role while you're brainstorming. Here's the thing, John, if you were playing the role of Steve Jobs with a bunch of colleagues, nobody's going to laugh at Steve for coming up with a big idea. They might laugh at Steve for coming up with a small one. So now you, AKA Steve, are totally liberated. You can say anything you want, no fear of retribution. So does that sound silly in a large accounting firm? Yes, but I'll tell you what, I've seen it work again and again and again, simply by removing the fear and, and projecting into a different role, we liberate our creative capacity. So, so let's say we've done these uh, brainstorming events and now we've got the white, you know, white papers all over the wall and, and, and a dozen good ideas. How do, we, how do we recognize one that's worth doing? <laughs> Well, there's a number of different, a great question. There's a number of different methodologies for idea selection. There's the classic B-School one where you evaluate each idea on a number of different factors and give them a quantitative score and see what, and there's nothing wrong with that. I've got some more fun ones though. So one of them is, what I like to do is instead of letting someone's the loudest person in the room win every argument or the person with the fanciest title, um, one thing is you say, okay, which ideas merit further exploration? So therefore you're not like all in committing to an idea. You're just saying, okay, of the hundred ideas we generated, these five seem to like fit what we're going for. And then you can figure out a way, what's the fastest, cheapest way we can prototype or test the ideas. So when you find yourself doing it that way, you don't have to make this all or nothing bets. It, it's way easier to move forward. One other quick one that's pretty fun. Let's say you and I are the two two people with each with our own idea and we're just like dug in. We're not, we're unwilling to budge. It's a fun methodology. It's called trial by jury where we basically have to argue our ideas as if we were lawyers arguing to a jury and the jury are the peers in our organization. But here's the catch. We have to swap ideas. So I'm having to argue in good faith, your idea, you have to argue in good faith, mine. And what that does is it builds this incredible sense of empathy. And sometimes I've seen people do it who are so dug in on their idea. And then they're like, wow, now I started arguing the other idea. Maybe we should do a variant of that. And so it's a good way of breaking the loggerhead and moving forward. And now let's hear a word from our sponsor. Do you want your home to stand out from the rest of the block? Vesta Steel Siding is one of the fastest growing siding products in the market. It's made of one of the strongest and most recyclable materials on the planet, so it can withstand anything Mother Nature can throw at it. Vesta has won design awards because of its patent design, rich solid colors and the plank-like profile and unique natural looking wood grain look without any homeowner maintenance. 
Be the first on your block to style your home with a bold, innovative solution that looks amazing for the life of your home. Check it out at qualityedge.com slash Vesta. So uh, you cite uh, several studies, lots of stats on uh, the fact that there is a kind of a creativity or innovation gap or that creativity is the the killer skill, I guess, today. So so how, how do you think companies should address that regardless of industry? I mean, obviously, there are certain industries where people are like, well, of course, half our team's creatives. But but a lot of businesses uh, really have that. I mean, I would say most businesses have that as a gap. How do we actually start installing that? Is, is it a matter of how we look for people or is it really a matter of the permission we give them? I think it's much more the latter. It, it, ideally, I, again, I really believe in my soul that there are 7 billion people walking around who are creatives. It's not like the creatives, they, they sit on floor on the second floor, like we're all the creatives. Again, in different ways. Doesn't mean someone's good at graphic design, but we all can be creative. Yeah. So then really what we need to do is build a, a system, a cultural system that's sort of like a greenhouse. So a greenhouse can, can, creates the optimal conditions for plant growth. So as leaders, we need to create the optimal conditions for imagination output and creativity output. So I think that role really falls on leaders. In fact, I see the opposite. Sometimes people will go to great lengths to hire amazingly creative talent, and then they seldom let them even use those skills. So I think it's a matter of, first of all, creating a safe, ideal environment, providing the right conditions, providing the right rituals and rewards that support the creative process. And again, prioritizing and rewarding based on those skills. Just one really fast example in terms of rituals, one one organization that I, I worked with, they, they issue every team member two corporate get out of jail free cards every year. And here's what they say. They say, go out on a limb, take responsible risk. Creativity is part of your responsibility. And if you screw something up, which is likely, hand us a card, you're off the hook, no questions asked. And on the annual reviews, the leader will be disappointed with the team member if they haven't used both of them. So now you might be thinking, gosh, that feels so risky. But what I would say with great respect is what's the risk of not doing something like that? You know, irrelevance, mediocrity. So I think it's so incumbent on us as leaders to create that environment, because if we if we have a natural resource of human creativity and we don't tap into it, we don't leverage it. We're we're, we're just sort of standing still waiting for the competitors to eat our lunch. Well, I tell you, from a leadership standpoint, too, is you're also setting yourself up for everybody to count on you to come up with the ideas <laughs> and you start having people come up with better ways to do things. And all of a sudden it makes your job a lot easier. Absolutely. Right. Just one other fun one. So there's a guy that I interviewed for this book called Tro and Resterick. And he's this cool dude from the UK and you've never heard of him because I really feature these stories that are not the celebrity billionaires, but the sort of everyday cool people doing great stuff, people that you and I can relate to. Anyway, he does a neat ritual as a leader. He's got about 50 employees now and he does something called F up Fridays. Well, he's, <laughs> He says the whole word. I'll, I'll be PG yeah. today. But and an F, F up Friday is he has a whole team meeting, 50 person team meeting, a brown bag lunch. And they go around the room and every person's on their turn. They say, what did you F up this last week? And what did you learn from it? And when they get and, and by the way, these are cheers and people are clapping and celebrating. And then when they get to somebody who didn't F something up, they're like, well, why not? What are you going to try next week? So I would just say, again, think about the message that that drives deep into the DNA of this organization about the importance of creativity and the importance of taking some risk. That's awesome. So so speaking of stories, I mentioned the Top Golf one as as a great example, but to, what was, what's your favorite story from the book? I always like to ask authors that. It's like choosing your favorite kid, man. It's so hard, you know, and, I, and I, the thing I love about it is, again, it wasn't, I didn't talk about Netflix or Apple because we already know they're innovative. I found these these oddball ones. I mean, there's so many beautiful ones. There's a story of this uh, woman who uh, created something called Defy Ventures, which is a program that helps 
convicts redirect their hustle. They say, what did you, what were you, what your positive skills about being like a gang leader? And could you then after incarceration, deploy those skills to become an entrepreneur? And she's had this wildly successful impact on reduction of recidivism rate. There's another one that just comes to mind. This, these three chemistry nerds at UC Santa Barbara, it was, they, they had this idea, could we um, help the world have more food? Turns out that one out of nine people on the planet don't have enough to eat every night. So they said, well, why don't we have enough food when there are 40% of fruits and vegetables are spoiled at some point in the, in the transportation process? So through a bunch of experimentation and many of the principles that I cover in the book, they came up with a way to use plants, the, the actual plant-based material, in a spray-on manner to enhance the, the, life, uh, the lifetime value of a peel. All fruits and vegetables have a peel. And so they're able to make strawberries last eight times longer and, and avocados last three and a half times longer. And, and what they're doing is they're making a massive impact in the food supply, feeding hungry people, and they've created a company that's now worth over a billion dollars. So I love finding these little stories that no one knows about and sharing them with the world. Yeah. And I, for some reason, I really uh, connected with the chewing gum one, but you're going to have to buy the book to hear that story. So. so one of the things that probably the whole back half of the book really talks is, I mean, you start it with a, a, a part title about obsession. Is, this, is that how you view how you know, the CEO's role should be in an organization is to, to breed this idea of obsession over innovation? Yeah, you know, we could swap out different words, mindsets or, or, or approaches, but but basically you're right. So the first half of the book is laying the foundation. So we re reveal new research in neuroscience and, and all kinds of academic research and business research. And it talks about leveling the, leveling the playing field that we can all be creative regardless of our background and, and how we can really use that to our advantage. The second half of the book, you're exactly right, covers one chapter each, the eight obsessions of everyday innovators. And the cool thing is these are all fun ideas, but they're portable. They don't require years of study. They don't require millions of dollars, but we can take them and put them into use in our careers and our companies and even in our communities very quickly. So is there any risk of some, somebody picking up the book and saying, we're going to do all eight of those this quarter? I don't think it's a it's a it's a risk. I mean, I, I do think that you can bite off more than you can chew in life, but I don't think there's a risk of doing that because these are small mindset shifts that that don't have like a, a real downside repercussion. Again, you're not investing in too many things all at once. You're not taking irresponsible risks. Quite the opposite. Yeah. Just to give someone a, a preview of it, like one one of the principles is use every drop of toothpaste. And it's the notion of being scrappy and resourceful and 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 creating things even when you have resource constraints. Funny thing I hear all the time, like the biggest complaint I hear is, hey, I'd love to be more innovative as a team, but I'm lacking. And then there's like a fill in the blank. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough bandwidth. I don't have enough raw materials. But I would challenge again in a playful way to say that if the amount of external resources you had equals the level of creativity, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet and startups would be the least. And we know the exact opposite is true. So again, I don't think there's risk in any of these. I think they're fun or playful, but they're almost like little brain tattoos that we can take back and put it to use and really drive momentum. My dad used to say all the time when something would go wrong that, and, and you know, there was finger pointing, it was, he, he'd always say uh, something along the lines of fix the problem, not the blame. And it, my favorite of your obsessions is fall in love with the problem. And I, I really think that when people change their mindset about not even calling it a problem, it's like, you know, it's like this new cool thing we get to address. People that I think have that mindset really already are ahead in the game, aren't they? 
Yeah, very much so. You know, we're, we're, we're taught to be very positive and we should be solution oriented and all that. And, and of course, that's great. But the, the risk is that we become too quickly connected to the wrong solution. And then we become just dog, dog, like unwilling to change <laughs> tunnel vision. And so the, the principle that you're describing, fall in love with the problem is first get really, really deep on what's the challenge that you're trying to solve. What's the problem that you're trying to solve and sort of bathe in it and study it from all different angles. And the point is that your allegiance should be solving to, to solving the problem, not a particular way of solving it. Because yeah. when you get deeper in the problem, first of all, you might discover a better approach. And secondly, if you only are overly committed to a particular thing and that doesn't work out, it's very easy to quit. Whereas if you're focused on the problem, then you might be willing to pivot and try a new approach and one after that, one after that. So yeah, that's the principle. Fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Well, it becomes a bit of a game then at that as opposed to a chore. At least that's how I view it. So Josh, where can people find out more about your work, of course, and then obviously find more on Big Little Breakthroughs? Well, I'd really encourage people to check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. If they want to buy a book, great. But even if you don't, there's a free assessment to give you a sense of how your creative creative abilities are today. There's downloadable worksheets. There's tools. There's quick start guides. There's like a whole treasure trove. It's a big toolkit, really, to help you become more creative. If you want to buy the book, awesome. But even if you don't, check out Big Little Breakthroughs. And at that website, you can, it links to my website, and there's all kinds of info on me as well. Christmas of 1966, my parents bought an Atari Pong game and we screwed it into the little black and white TV that we had. And it was pretty state of the art at the time. It was pretty amazing. I'm with you, man. I used to play Frogger, which was one of my favorite games. I even read about it in the book, but yeah. yeah, I, yeah and actually, I, I was going to say, I love the analogy that you use for Frogger because that is such an apt analogy of what it's like to be in business. You know, sit, stay on that one little log too long and something's going to come along pretty darn soon and, and knock you off. That's great. <laughs> Exactly right. So for those that didn't know, so the, the game of Frogger, it's, you know, this little frog, you have to cross the river, by, but you can't swim. So you have to jump on the back of moving objects like a, a lily pad or a log or whatever. But the principle here, and I call it the Frogger principle, is if you jump on the back of a log and you're safe, if you just stand there, if you like celebrate success too long, you fall in the river and die. And so just like that little frog, I think in business, we're playing a giant game of Frogger and those logs and lily pads are coming faster at every moment. So yes, we should spike the ball and celebrate the wins, but we also have to keep on moving. The minute we just simply rely on a previous point of stability and success could quite often be the beginning of the end. Yes. Amen. Josh, thanks for uh, stopping by the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll run into you uh, when we all get back out there on the road again someday. Can't wait. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. And keep doing the great work you are with the podcast. All right, so that wraps up another episode. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. And you know we love those reviews and comments. And just generally tell me what you think. Also, did you know that you could offer the duct tape marketing system, our system, to your clients and build a complete marketing, consulting, coaching business, or maybe level up an agency with some additional services? That's right. Check out the duct tape marketing consultant network. You can find it at ducttapemarketing.com and just scroll down a little and find that offer our system to your clients tab.